we introduced a new series for Wednesday evenings on simplicity in life with God. The theme passage is from 2 Corinthians 11, verses 1 through 4. I'm going to come back to that here in just a moment. But the message this evening is on the obedience of faith. It's a phrase that appears a couple of times in the book of Romans, and we're going to uh, unfold that and, and uh, explain that here in our time that we have this evening. But before I do that, I want to open with a couple of excerpts from a Donald Whitney book, and the book is entitled Simplify Your Spiritual Life, Spiritual Discipline for the Overwhelmed. Uh, Whitney's stuff on spiritual disciplines is very good, and I like it because it's straightforward and plain, and I'm straightforward and plain, so I resonate with what he writes. But here's what he says in, in part of this chapter on practicing true spirituality. He said, Spirituality is the pursuit of God in the things of God through Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit in accordance with God's self-revelation, that is, the Bible. He says, Notice that genuine spirituality seeks the things of God, or more specifically, things which are above where Christ is. Any spirituality that does not seek things like the will and glory of God in everything, intimacy and conformity to Christ and love, and does not seek them above all other pursuits, is a false spirituality. And then the last paragraph here in this section, he says, Don't be deceived by a complex spirituality that gives the appearance of wisdom, but doesn't start with Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Colossians 2 and verse 3. And don't become entangled in any spiritual practices that sound good, but incline your mind and heart away from things above. One of the spiritual enemy's primary tactics is to attempt to draw us away from the simplicity that is in Christ. That's part of what legalism is. All the other isms have some form of that. And when the Christian life is complicated, it can be confusing and discouraging. Now, what I want you to understand is something that I mentioned as we got going in this particular series. Simplicity does not mean simplistic. There are many things in the Bible that are deep, that are difficult to conceive of and understand. There are many things that in our sanctification and our walk with Christ, our spiritual growth, we're going to learn as we go along. Some we'll never fully understand until we get to heaven to be with the Lord. And if we could explain everything away, then it, then it would not be what it truly is. So we leave these things understanding that there are mysteries, there are difficulties, there are deep waters. But God wants us to understand Him and he wants us to understand how to know him. And then he wants us to understand how to live for him. And that's why simplicity in life with God is so important. A.W. Tozer said, every age has its own characteristics. Right now, we're in an age of religious complexity. The simplicity, which is in Christ, is rarely found among us. Now, our theme passage for this study is 2 Corinthians 11, verses 1 through 4. And I want to, by way of review, read that again. I wish you would put up with a little foolishness from me. Yes, you do put up with me, for I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, because I have promised you in marriage 
to one husband to present a pure virgin to Christ. But I fear that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your minds may be seduced from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if a person comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we did not preach, or you receive a different spirit, which you had not received, or a different gospel, which you had not accepted, you put up with it splendidly. So he was calling them out as well as warning them. He's saying, look, you got to be on the lookout for these things because these people are coming in. They're teaching things that are divergent from the truth. And he said, don't get pulled away so easily. Don't buy into this and be confused. I want you to focus on what is truly essential. Jesus in his ministry on the earth, even though he was the son of God with complexity beyond what we can even imagine, really, with the depths of the triune God. Even so, Jesus did not depend on complicated externals in his earthly ministry. In fact, his effectiveness came from the power of the triune God. You think about it, what the Bible teaches us, according to the Bible, Jesus had no place to lay his head. He would often use hillsides and fishing boats to teach. He used the hills and gardens for his prayer rooms. He used simple stories, plants, seeds, birds, things that anybody could identify with in that context. He ministered to people as he went. Jesus was often interrupted. He didn't have such a complex schedule, even though everybody was clamoring for his time, that he could not focus attention on the person who was in front of him to minister to them. He trusted in the provision of his father in everything that he did in his life and ministry on the earth. He lived to serve others, and he told us that if we want to be great, we need to first be a servant. He suffered the cost rather than receiving the favor of many in the world. The ministry of Christ is an example to us. One pastor said the main things of the Bible are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. If you're going to build a great church, you must make the basics beautiful. The big idea for this study is that simple devotion to God sets us free. And we're going to look at two passages of Scripture. The first in Romans chapter 1 and verse 5. And then the second in Romans chapter 16 and verse 25 to 27. So let's begin with Romans chapter 1 and verse 5. And let's hear what the Scripture says. And I want you to focus in particularly on this phrase, obedience of faith. Because that's the whole topic tonight. What is the obedience of faith? How do we respond to it? How does it affect our lives for the Lord? Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 5 says, Through him we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the Gentiles. Now turn over, if you will, to Romans 16, beginning in verse 25. Romans 16, beginning in verse 25, says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the proclamation about Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery kept silent for long ages, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic scriptures, according to the command of the eternal God to advance, here we are on this phrase again, the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles. Verse 27, to the only wise God through Jesus Christ, to him be the glory forever. Amen. 
In Romans 16, Paul comes back to this subject of the Gentiles, which was his primary calling, even though he used his entry into the synagogues and otherwise to begin the proclamation of the gospel. And he offers what amounts to a closing benediction. This is a doxology that begins with the statement, to him who is able. Now that's a great phrase and it's packed with meaning because we recognize that God has all the power. He's the only one who can bring about uh, the things that are good and holy and righteous. He blesses us to be a part of that, but he's the one who is able. He's the one who empowers us to live for Christ. And it follows a long sentence describing what God has done and is doing through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So this doxology is not just hanging out here by itself. This doxology is tied in to emphasize and to amplify what he said up to this point. The Christians in Rome were reminded that God could strengthen them in the gospel if they would trust in him. The true gospel is that through faith in Jesus, anybody can be forgiven and receive a righteousness from God that cannot be attained in any other way. Paul describes this great truth as a mystery, and it was revealed by God when the time was right. Now, with the revelation from God about the gospel, it was clear that the prophetic writings in the Old Testament pointed to the truth about Jesus with a sense of anticipation. The truth of the gospel had been made known to all nations, but now it's been clearly put on display through the person of Jesus preaching or proclamation of the good news and that's the word that is used in in the roman 16 passage that we just read uh, is from a word in the original language that is kerygma kerygma means proclamation but you can't have proclamation without content to proclaim so this is not just empty proclamation but this is the fullness of christ this is the full embodiment of the gospel that is being proclaimed to the people and that we proclaim today and the kerygma was associated with that early apostolic preaching ch dodd summarized the kerygma in his book entitled uh, the apostolic preaching and its developments and here's what he noted that the kerygma includes in terms of the content it includes the fulfillment of scripture the inauguration of a new age the lineage of jesus that is traced back to king david in several places in the scripture jesus death on the cross his burial his resurrection his exaltation and the promise that he's going to return as the judge and he's going to return to complete everything that is a part of god's plan so this doxology is brought to a close in praise to God, and it ends with a, an appropriate and final amen. Our subject here is the obedience of faith. This phrase appears only two times here in these verses in Romans. And the way the phrase is translated is interesting. You'll find the obedience of faith or for obedience to the faith like the faith once and for all delivered to the saints or leading to obedience of faith or to the obedience that comes from faith now i say that because the main variation in these translations is the definite article the 
the definite article does not appear in the original language. If the Apostle Paul had meant for obedience to the faith, then certainly the Holy Spirit would have had him uh, write that down uh, and describe, write it down to make sure that it was there. The importance of the phrase is marked by its position at the start of the letter in Romans 1 and the conclusion of the letter in Romans 16. In Romans 1, Paul tells them that the goal of his apostleship was to bring about the obedience of faith among the Gentiles for the sake of Jesus' name. Then in the end, in Romans 16, he says again the purpose and goal of his gospel is to bring about the obedience of faith all over the world that brings glory to God. Faith is the main thing. O obedience is the result of faith. Now, I really like the New English translation on this, and this is a little bit older translation that never took uh, root very much or was used very much, but I like the way this translates it. God's command made known to all nations to bring them to faith and obedience. What the New English translation does is makes it more clear the relationship between faith and obedience. And I think that's the intent of the obedience of faith or obedience of faith that is mentioned here in the, in the scripture. The New Living Translation says this message is made known to all Gentiles everywhere. And then they do something similar as the New English so that they too might believe and obey him. Paul is speaking of the obedience which is faith. In other words, it refers specifically to obeying the command to believe the gospel. And then when you obey the command to believe the gospel, then obedience is going to be the fruit of that. Your life is going to be evidence that you are following after Christ. So let me give you several ideas here that I think will be helpful as we uh, think through this. First of all, the obedience of faith calls for surrender. It calls for surrender. I think what's in view at the outset is initial faith. So it's that point in time when we surrender to Jesus as Savior and Lord. That happens for everybody at a different time. Some are children, like I was. Others are much older when they come to faith in Jesus. And what we know is that we are not justified or declared righteous by God by our obedience, but rather through our faith in Jesus. Faith is not a work. Faith is a response to the finished work of Jesus. The disobedience of Adam made us all sinners by nature. So we are made righteous through faith. Romans 5 and verse 19 says, through the obedience of the one man, the man, Jesus Christ. Now, I think one of the most important passages in all the Bible is Romans chapter 5. And I don't have time right now to, to really unfold it, but it's so important because it contrasts Adam and Jesus. And it's on the heels of the discussion about justification by faith in Romans chapter 3, the discussion about Abraham believing God and it being credited to him as righteousness. He comes to, to Romans chapter 5, and he's talking about the contrast between Adam that made us sinners by nature because of their disobedience to God, and then Jesus who secured our righteousness. And when we think about it this way, we would say that the life of Jesus and his death 
are great acts of obedience to God the Father. So let me just reiterate this. We are justified not by anything that we have done, nor anything that we can do, nor anything that we will ever do, but solely on what Jesus has done for us. Richard Griffin said in his work, By Faith, Not By Sight, disaster will surely result from denying or obscuring faith as the only instrument of justification, both present and future. People can only be delivered from judgment for sin through faith in Jesus and what he's accomplished. And what Paul does here is he turns to describe what we have gained in being justified by faith. In Romans 5 and verse 1, it says, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So when you and I are justified and we're declared righteous and the righteousness of Jesus is imputed to us, it's credited to our account. We are then at peace with God. We're at peace with God. We've been reconciled and forgiven of our sins. And we have peace with God. And we also have the peace of God. But what does it mean to exercise saving faith in Jesus? Well, it means to repent and believe, as I've already mentioned, in obedience to the command of God. You say, where do you get that it's a command from God? Well, Acts chapter 17 and verse 30 would be a start. The Bible says that God commands all people everywhere to repent. That's what Paul said on Mars Hill. So it's God's commandment to people that they would observe and consider the gospel of Jesus Christ and then repent and believe. And I'll note another place in Scripture because the New Testament speaks of unbelievers as being those who do not obey the gospel. And I give you a verse here, Romans chapter 10 and verse 16, as well as 2 Thessalonians 1 and verse 8. Romans chapter 10 and verse 16 and 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 8 both speak of unbelievers as people who do not obey the gospel. We do not believe and then obey. I don't think that's necessarily helpful to think about in a linear sense like that. I think rather we obey by believing then we continue to obey. We continue to follow and to do what Christ has commanded us to do. It means to trust in Jesus alone as the ground and the basis of our salvation. It means that when we are in Christ, his righteousness is counted as ours. And there's no greater thought of peace in the world than the fact that we can be reconciled to a holy God, not based on what we have done but based on what christ has done for us god's grace reigns through the free gift of righteousness to secure eternal life for us so i think that believing is obedience both in becoming a christian and walking with christ through our lives now the word surrender is a battle word a battle term it implies giving up rights to a conqueror to someone who has uh, defeated you, essentially. Uh, when an opposing army surrenders, they lay down their weapons, and the winners take control. Romans chapter 6 and verse 13 says, Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself as an instrument of righteousness. One of my favorite stories 
from church history is from General William Booth, uh, who, of course, was uh, instrumental in Salvation Army. And he was once asked to reveal the secret of success. And I've shared this several times just because I like it. But after some hesitation, they said tears came to his eyes. And he said, I'll tell you the secret. God has had all there was of me. He said, there may have been men with greater brains than I have, men with greater opportunities. But from the day that I got the poor of London on my heart and caught a vision of what Jesus could do, I made up my mind that God should have all of William Booth. It's that which led Dr. J. Wilbur Chapman, the questioner, to remark, I learned from William Booth that the greatness of a man's power is the measure of his surrender. Now let me tell you why I think a lot of Christians don't have victory in their Christian life and they don't experience what they think they should be experiencing in their walk with Christ because they're halfway in they're half committed it's a faith of convenience that's why i hope you're not there but you might be there and you might kind of stick your toe in the water you might kind of dabble in the christian faith you might think it's a really respectful and good thing to do you might have made a profession of faith and even been baptized but you're just still halfway you're half committed that's not going to take you where you need to go or where you want to go with the depth of your relationship with jesus I'm not questioning your salvation. I'm not the Holy Spirit. But what I'm telling you is you'll not experience the fullness of what Christ has for you unless you fully surrender to him. And I understand this is an ongoing process. For me, it's a daily deal because I've got a lot that still needs to be rooted out and sanctified and a lot of areas that I need to grow and develop in, and and I'm sure you're the same. But the Lord's patient, is he not? He uses us. He works with us. He loves us. He brings us along. He disciplines us when we need disciplining. And all through it, our surrender to him is a mark of the obedience of faith. Then second, this leads me to what I was just talking about. The obedience of faith calls for commitment. Now, I told you that I think the first idea has to do with the initial step of faith when we come to Christ. I think this has to do with continuing faith. This is bowing your knee before Jesus in your life. So the nature of faith is surrender, but the nature of faith is also submission. And when we submit to Jesus, we entrust ourselves to his rule, and we experience the blessings of his saving righteousness. I think about Abraham, our father in the faith. He's a wonderful example of the obedience of faith. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 8 comments on Abraham's obedient faith. And here's what it says. Hebrews 11 and verse 8 says, By faith Abraham believed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an, an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. And it was saving faith according to Genesis 15 and verse 6 because it says, And he believed in the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. And I think sometimes part of our challenge is we want everything just laid out perfectly in front of us. And we're thinking about uh, surrender and we're thinking about commitment. We're like, Lord, just tell me everything I need to know. And, and, we, and we want it all marked out. But Abraham could not see where he was going. But he said yes, which was a step of commitment. So for some of us, we need to stop putting 
stipulations on God or guidelines on God on what our commitment looks like. Because when we love Jesus, we will joyfully submit to Jesus. And you remember it was Jesus himself who connected our love for him and obedience to his teachings. You remember John 14 and verse 15? Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. He's the one that connected that. And he's not saying that we keep his commandments in order to gain his love. He's saying because he's given us his love and because we love him, then we want to keep his commandments. And sometimes I run into to the situation where people seem to want to use God's grace as an excuse for low commitment and apathy and spiritual lukewarmness. But if you see grace in that way, I would argue that you probably don't understand what grace is. Like if your concept is, I can lower the bar to the lowest common denominator and still be a Christian, you're not really understanding how the whole thing works. Because it is a life-consuming relationship with the God of the universe. And that changes everything. Jesus changes everything. And when we understand that grace, as it's been defined as God's riches at Christ's expense, is God's unmerited favor toward the unworthy, then we understand that grace draws us into a closer relationship with God, and then grace motivates us to live for God. I think that the Christian life consists of ongoing obedience. Now, there's a section on Christian ethics in Romans chapter 12, and it explains the outcome of Romans 12 and verse 1 and 2, what happens in light of the mercies of God. So in light of these great mercies of God that he's given us, in light of all that Jesus does for us and all that he is to us, what comes to us by way of the mercies of God? Well, Romans chapter 12 gives us, gives us some insight into that. And really all of Romans gives us insight into this because we have justification by faith that comes from the mercies of God. We have adoption into the family of God. We have grace and not the law. The Holy Spirit indwells us. He lives within us. We have the promise of help in times of affliction. We have confidence of coming glory. And we have hope in the faithfulness of God. So as you live out your life and your Christian life with God, you can know that because of the mercies of God, there are great riches available to you. And they come to us, we experience them, through a life of commitment. Romans chapter 12, in that section I was talking about, he begins in verse 9, and he goes all the way through uh, verse 21. I, I went back and, and read that section several times today and was just amazed at all the different instructions that are in there. I, like, I wonder if we, just, if we took that list of instructions, we said, okay, Jesus, I want to be fully surrendered to you through initial faith, I want to be committed to you through ongoing faith, but now I want to see the realities of how my life changes so that I can be more like Jesus. What do I apply in my life so that I can be more like him? And you just start walking through those things one by one. You say, look, if all those were true in my life, I would be far farther along than I am now in what Christ is doing. We're told to be genuine, to detest what is evil and cling to what is good to love deeply as family and honor one another and 
be fervent in serving the Lord. We're told to rejoice in hope and to be patient in affliction and persistent in prayer and to share with others and pursue hospitality and bless those who persecute you and rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep to live in harmony and to be humble and to be at peace with others and to leave the wrath to God. And he's just getting started. But this is the outcome. So everything we do is to be done from faith. And maybe there's some area of your life right now that, that you're struggling with and you've been pushing back against it and you've been trying to break the strongholds. Could it be that the reason you're not breaking the strongholds is because you're trying to do it in your strength and not God's? Could it be that whatever the situation is in your life right now that you feel like you have no answer to and you don't know what you're going to do about it, that if you took that to the Lord and you just laid it at his feet and you had faith and trusted that he was going to work it out and you responded as he, as he led, could it be that that's not going to be transformational for you? Too often we try ourselves without God's help and then we consult God when we get in trouble and we crisis pray and we should have started at the beginning and said, Lord, here's where I'm at. This is what I need, and he'll help you. The Christian life is the outworking of our salvation. There's another verse in, that I want to share from Philippians 2 and verse 12, and it says this. Therefore, my dear friends, just as you've always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So he says, look, you've always obeyed, you got a testimony of, of commitment. In other words, you've got a testimony of faithfulness. But now, you got to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. The idea of working out your salvation means to continually work to bring something to completion or to fruition. It means to pursue obedience in the process of sanctification. And I think fear and trembling indicate humility and reverence. The Puritan John Owen said, Gospel truth is the only root that gospel holiness will grow on. Now, I referenced legalism earlier, and I think that relates directly to that because if it is true, and it is biblically, that gospel truth is the only root that gospel holiness will grow upon, then you can see the shortcoming of legalism in trying to do it on your own. Because we can't. Only God can. And when we believe that, and if we want the fruit of transformation and of holiness, we got to have a foundation. And God gives us that foundation in Christ. There's a story about C.T. Studd, who was a 19th century British athlete. He played cricket, uh, sort of like baseball, but not really. Um, and he was born into this wealthy family, had a bunch of money. Uh, he was a great athlete. He became pretty famous in his own right. But when he became a Christian, they said that he gave up everything. He was 110% at whatever he did. And in part, that's why he'd become such a great athlete. He inherited all this money, and what did he do with it? He gave it away, and he went to the mission field. That's what he was like. He was intense. C.T. Studd was in a tent or somewhere. They said probably in Africa was the story that was being told. He was with another missionary colleague, and they're in terrible living conditions. It's terribly cold. There's no heat. They could barely sleep. And in the middle of the night, this colleague wakes up, and what does he see? But C.T. Studd shivering with a blanket around him in the corner of the tent, reading his Bible by candlelight. And he said, what are you doing? Why aren't you resting? And this is what C.T. Studd said. I felt that something was wrong in my relation to the Lord. 
And so I am reading through the New Testament in case I have unwittingly violated the Lord's commands. Now that's intense. He said, I feel like something's off in my relationship with God. What can I do? But listen, that's the kind of intensity that leads to spiritual growth. We have all the tools we need. Did Peter not tell us that God's given us everything pertaining to life and godliness? Was he telling the truth? Of course he was. Are we not sealed with the Spirit of God and indwelled by the Spirit of God? Of course we are. So the triune God is indwelling us. And then Peter says, listen, you got everything you need. So I often say it this way, and I want to say it again tonight. Most of us are just as spiritual as we want to be. We're just as far along in our Christian life as we want to be. We're just as much like Jesus as we want to be. And I say that because the obedience of faith calls for commitment. Now, I'm not saying that we've arrived. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is the progress of working out our faith, working out our salvation in fear and trembling, um, we have to hunger for that and have a desire for him. Now, third, the obedience of faith results in spiritual fruit. The first part was initial faith. Second part is ongoing commitment. Now, this is what is born out of our lives. Like, what's the evidence that we're a Christian? I heard a, a message. I, I watch a lot of old preaching. I, I enjoy preaching, especially older preaching, people that have some fire and some, um, some unction to them. Uh, Brother Bernard will resonate with the unction comment. But I was listening to Billy Graham uh, preach a message, and he was, he was preaching from Daniel, and he was preaching on a section about the handwriting being on the wall. And um, he, he was talking about, basically, if, if your works were weighed, how much would you weigh? And he's given a spiritual illustration here that no matter what we weigh, we're going to be put on the scales and found wanting, wanting without Christ. So he's making the point that none of us weigh enough spiritually to be righteous in the sight of God because our righteousness is as filthy rags. And I think that's so true that this is not an issue of us trying to stack up works or to be uh, further along by our efforts, but rather it's the fruit of our justification. So obedience is the fruit of that faith. Romans chapter 6 and verse 5 says, if we are planted together with him in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of of his resurrection. Now, I like the terminology there, especially as it relates to, to farming. Planted together refers to being engrafted, which causes us to grow in Christ. The Holy Spirit empowers that. Fruit grows. And you remember the whole concept of the branch and the vine? That fruit is what the vine produces on the branch. And let me just remind you and ask you this question What can the branch produce by way of fruit apart from the vine? And the answer is nothing. I can produce no spiritual fruit, nothing of, of value as it relates to righteousness, apart from God's work in my life. And the key that Jesus reminds us of in John chapter 15 is to abide in Christ. What does it mean to abide in Him? It means to depend on Him. It means to be one with Him. Romans 8 and verse 13 says, if you live according to the flesh, you're going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. 
You say, wait a minute, is there not a contrast between what Paul says in Romans and then what James presents in James chapter 2? Remember what James said? James said, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works and I will show you faith by my works. He said, you believe that God is one, good. Even the demons believe and they shudder. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So now what do we make of that? Well, think about it this way. Faith alone justifies. But faith that justifies is never alone. Let me say that again. Faith alone justifies. But faith that justifies is never alone. What is spiritual fruit? It's the result of growth. It's the result of the relationship between the vine and the branches and the fruit that belongs to the vine. The branch is just an extension. We're not the vine. We're not the vine dresser either. We're the branches. And to keep vines or trees healthy, they also had to be pruned to let the sun in and uh, to help to produce more fruit. And Paul makes it abundantly clear in Romans chapter 3 that salvation is by faith alone. And James does not argue against salvation by faith alone. Paul uses uh, justified to mean declared righteous by God. This is the legal declaration. James uses the term justified to mean demonstrated and proved. So one translation of James 2.24 says, you see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. So, so what they did to try to explain it in an English sense is to explain how he's using justified there. That we are considered righteous by what we do and not by faith alone, but we don't gain that righteousness by what we do. Or another translation says, so you see, we are shown to be right by God by what we do. So we think about it this way. We demonstrate the genuineness of our faith by what we do. We reflect who we are in Christ. Fruit is the result of a healthy plant. She said, well, I want to bear fruit. So should I work at bearing fruit? No, you should work at abiding. You should strive to abide. Say, you want to be more like Jesus? Then get to know him better. Commune with him. Study his word. Ask the spirit of God to change you, to work in your life. And the word fruit in the Bible is often used to describe a person's outward actions that result from the condition of the heart. You might have thought of this verse in Proverbs 11 and verse 30. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. So spiritual fruit is the result of genuine faith. And then I give you this as I come toward a close tonight. Seek to maintain a pure and sincere devotion to Christ. I conclude where I began. Don't overcomplicate it. The spiritual disciplines are not easy, but they are clearly what God has called us to so that we can know him through his word, through prayer, through fellowship, through the body of Christ, everything that goes along, all encompassing with the Christian life. That's where we want to be, and that's how we want to live. Don't let anything take you off of that pure devotion to Christ. Just keep coming back to Him, 
and say, Lord, this is where I want to live. This is where I want to dwell. And one day, we're going to get to heaven, and we're going to see him face to face. I'm going to realize it was all worth it, and that everything God said was true, because God can be trusted. Let's bow our heads together for a moment as we pray.